Multiply podcast, conversation aimed to stir, equip and provoke. Interviewing thinkers, practitioners and pioneers as we aim to inspire and equip kingdom people to launch kingdom communities. You can find more resources on the Vineyard Churches website, www.vineyardchurches.org.uk. Well, welcome to everybody who's joining us. I've got a couple of people with me today. I've got Nigel Hemming, who leads Winchester Vineyard. And if you don't know, he transitioned into the leadership of that church. And then also we've got Ted Kim, who's joining us. He leads the Everston Vineyard in the States and also transitioned from Steve Nicholson into the leadership of that. Many of you will have heard of Steve Nick. And we're just going to have a conversation around some of these areas around transition and a number of other things. So, guys, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Uh, why don't we just jump in? Is it all right, um, Ted, just give us a bit of background as to what you're doing and leading currently before we go back in in history around that is that okay just so people get some of the context yeah so so i took over the church uh from steve so steve nicholson who many of you know founded the church about 45 years ago uh and i came here in 2019 uh to be the senior associate pastor so i worked under steve for about nine months uh, and then uh, the church membership voted me in as the next senior pastor, March 2022 or 2020, which sound, should sound familiar to you. March 2020 is when basically the world yeah. like, came yeah, under the grips nice. of the pandemic. Yeah. Great timing. So great timing. I, well, you know, Steve would say perfect timing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he says that he says that multiple multiple times. You'll, you'll hear him talk about that. Like, yeah, it couldn't have gone better. And for me, it's like, well, yeah, it couldn't have gone worse. But <laughs> I, I actually took over the church like the Saturday after we shut down our in-person gathering. So, wow, um, the church was like, we're going to vote this guy in before he like disappears on us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, Smart and for a while, yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, I mean, like. You know this, I'm sure, but for a while, like I would, I would, um, we, we had a lot of things happen out here in the States um, because people were at home. There was the amplification of like people knowing like what was actually happening when it comes to systemic racism here in the States. And like everybody like yeah. knew about it, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, names that you probably know. Um, I know yeah. there was a moment for us. So I took over this church. Um, our church is located um, on the southernmost border of Evanston and Chicago. So we draw most of our people from Chicago. Um, and we're located near a couple of big box retailers. That's how they say it here in the States. Uh, and during some of that civil unrest, those big boxes stores got looted. And I remember getting on like one of our sort of regional pastoral vineyard calls. And Steve was still on because he was... He was still at these meetings. And I remember saying, so I took over this church, global pandemic, civil unrest, all the buildings near us being looted. I'm trying to figure out where I can take this church back for a refund. Yeah. And, every, and everybody would laugh except Steve. He would be like, you know. Yeah, yeah. Steve. Typical Steve. Yeah, yeah. Typical Steve. You know, yeah. he laughs when people get obliterated by the Holy Spirit. Yeah. That's when he laughs and and he, he loves that. I mean, it, it gives him people or you talked about being ambushed by the spirit. So I've preached more. I mean, probably now it's evened out, but I've preached more to a video camera than to actual people. Yeah. yeah. Um, and here we are in this moment of taking over the church. And in some ways, COVID was a blessing. In some ways, COVID was 
devastating. And so mm. we've kind of been straddling all of these different different realities. Every year I go away on pastoral retreat. Oh, the first year I went away on pastoral retreat, I felt like the Lord told me, next year is going to be hard. I go, okay. Um, yeah. Great. Brace myself for it. COVID. Then I go back on pastoral retreat or a private retreat the next year, and it's the summer, and it's after COVID has kind of landed. And I sit, and I just felt like the Lord said, you thought this year was hard. Yeah. Next year is going to be even harder. And so then I went on pastoral retreat again, and I didn't even bother asking. I'm like, okay, this is how it's going to be. So here we are at. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Gosh, what a baptism of fire, really, yeah. That's right, yeah. So I'm really interested, Ted, in, um, you, you know, obviously you, you just said that Steve, who, you've, who you took over from, you know, uh, planted the church that you're now leading 45 years ago. I mean, most people know, most people in the vineyard know about Steve and know about his legacy. Um, man, that's a, that's a big set of shoes to follow or to step into. Um, even if, even if COVID hadn't have happened, that would be like a really big deal. Um, how, you know, how do you even think about stepping into the shoes of someone like Steve Nicholson and not being completely intimidated or daunted by the prospect. Well, in some ways it's very easy. Um, in some ways it's like, it's impossible. So why, why even try? I mean, he's influenced more people with small touches than I know in my lifetime. So, um, yeah, I, it's, it's, it would be folly um to to think that i could replace steve um i mean i do feel pressure to be faithful to the legacy yeah. but um this is something this is something that uh that i've been wrestling with this is something that i i talked about at our most recent national conference so if it's okay i'll just repeat this kind of this my yeah, way absolutely. of understanding yeah. the way of living into the future um there's a little probably little known lutheran theologian named bob jensen um, who uh, most people have not read because he's like really difficult to read actually. <laughs> um, so, but I was reading him because one of our pastoral interns said, Hey, you need to read Bob Jensen. I mean, this would probably drive with like how a lot of how you're thinking, you know, Bob, one of Bob Jensen's criticisms of the world that we live in at large is that there is no meta narrative. So we live in this like postmodern, post we're becoming increasingly post-secular um here in the states we're moving toward post-christendom I mean, there's like a moment right now where the american um uh, evangelical church is getting eviscerated i mean so as we're moving into these moments one of the uh sort of one of the results of that is that like you know people have lost confidence in in kind of like an overarching like story that gives meaning to what it means to like be a human being in the world and so Bob Jensen wrote this article or wrote an essay, a short essay for, for a Christian publication called First Things. I think it has some Catholic roots here in the States. And he said, well, well, it's predictable. In the moment that we're in right now, what we did was we took the meta narrative of God as the narrator and we replaced it with mankind, uh, with enlightenment and modernism. And then once that happened and mankind realized uh, that our machines don't actually fix the real problem, which is our hearts. Um, then we started saying, well, that doesn't work. And so then we vacated whatever throne there was that gave actually meaning to, to us and how we live in the world. So our existence almost became absurd. So everybody has their own stories. 
you know, um, here's the meaningful story that I'm going to live out in my life. I um, mean, of course, the problem with that is that um, it's not good news when, like my, as my friend likes to say, likes to say it's not good news when you, all of your most important stories serve you. Mm-hmm. Because of course, like when the story begins to challenge you, like maybe it's not right that you talk to a person that way, or maybe it's not right that you broke up that marriage, or maybe it's not right that you like are whatever. When it comes to personal holiness, oftentimes the stories that we choose, um, we just get rid of, we just dump them. Like if there is no meta narrative, I can choose whatever story I want to live into, you know? Um, and, uh, and so Bob Jensen is like, sort of like, here's how, here's, here's, here's what has actually happened, you know? Um, yeah. And I promise I have a point here. <laughs> That's good in itself, but uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I promise I have a point. Like, so there's a, you know, like, I know that you're familiar with Aristotle, right? So one of the things that Aristotle said about plays or good stories is he said that like good stories are stories that surprise you. Good stories are stories that like, as you read the plot unfold, you like, you come to the plot, the end of the story and you realize, well, that really surprised me. But then you look back at the story and you realize, wow, that's exactly how it should have gone, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, And so this is kind of the way that I think Bob Jensen Bob Jensen talks about faithfulness, right? He's Bob Jensen says, faithfulness is not actually copying or imitating. So if I came into this, this role thinking like, I'm just going to copy everything that Steve did before me, including his wardrobe, mm-hmm. you know, everybody would say to me like, gosh, you're trying way too hard or not trying hard enough. Right. Yeah. Like, w- what are you doing? If I like stepped up on stage, you know, and I was wearing like, you know, black Velcro shoes and cargo pants. And I had like that collared shirt, you know, and I just like, I, I read from a script and whatever, they'd be like, you're just trying to imitate Steve. Right. And, and Bob Jensen's like, that's not faithfulness. You know, um, what does it mean for a person to be living is one of the things Bob mm-hmm. Jensen actually says, right? Well, part of what it means to be a person who's living is that that person can surprise you. You know, I mean, that's part of what revelation is actually, right? And so, um, so if you look at the continuity of ministry, like in the scriptures, so like, let's talk about transitions here for a moment. Let's talk about the transition from Elijah to Elisha, or the transition from Moses to Joshua. Did they copy? Did they do exactly the same things that Moses did before? They did things that were echoes, but they never did things that were exactly the same. And let's think about Jesus for a moment. When Jesus... Uh, had a ministry here on earth that was three years that rippled with power. Like all these people got saved. All these people got delivered. All this wonderful stuff actually started happening. All this stuff happened. Then he was crucified. Um, Then he was raised from the dead. Did he do exactly the same things after he was resurrected? He didn't. He didn't. He did radically different things, surprising things, including appearing to his disciples like behind locked doors, right? Um, Yet, John tells us, no one dared ask him who he was because they knew it was Jesus, right? Well, how did they know it was Jesus? Well, they knew it was Jesus because he did everything in the same character, the same ethos. They probably heard him call their names like in the same way, but he did radically different things. They were just, they were just not, not necessarily radically different things, but they were surprising things like mm-hmm. a miraculous catch of fish. We're going to eat broiled, broiled fish by the seashore. We're going to do different things. We're going to send you to Sea of Galilee. I'm not going to gather a, a multitude with me because I'm about to leave. There were different things, but they knew it was Jesus. How do they know it was Jesus? Because he was faithful to who he was before. Yeah. And so one of the things that Bob Jensen says is he says, faithfulness is not copying or imitating. We copy and imitate things that are dead. Mm. You know, um, faithfulness is actually what what Jensen calls um, 
rhyming to rhyme with the past you know um his his phraseology is that we rhyme with the past we don't copy we don't imitate it you know and so when i think about what does it look like for me to take on steve's shoes you know um i don't actually take his shoes and throw them in the in the rubbish you know um i keep those shoes around but i don't wear them yeah there's the shoes that remind me of the legacy of the of this of the of the of the way that Steve is like invested in leaders all around the world, the way that Steve has like has presented himself to the church, the way that Steve has taught, the way that like I don't like try to imitate him, but I'm like, what is the ethos of what he's done? Mm. Um, and as I participate in the discernment um, work of like finding out where would the church actually lead us, how can we rhyme with the past and not copy it? And what I love about rhyming is I love that it leaves room for the Lord of the new thing to do the new thing. Yeah, that's good. You know, and here's the other thing, guys. I mean, like we are in Advent right now, right? I mean, like we, like in our churches, like some of our churches being more liturgical in the vineyard, some of them don't, but we were like third week, third Sunday of Advent, we did our reading, we lit our candle. Um, and it occurs to me um, that, and you know this, right? But it occurs to me that baked in the Advent story is the new thing. Nobody was expecting a baby son to come to be crucified, to be resurrected. Nobody was expecting the incarnate, the incarnation. Nobody was expecting that. They were expecting another version of Judas Maccabeus, like somebody who would come in and take back over, defeat the Roman Empire and do all of that stuff. We know the story, right? 60, 70 years before Jesus arrived on the scene, the, the Jews were thinking, okay, how it's happened before is how it probably should happen again, which yeah. is... Occupied territory, Judas Maccabeus, reason why we do the Festival of Whites and Hanukkah, he comes in and he like, he defeats the, the squatters that are sitting in the temple. He like destroys them, like mutilates them, he kills them, right? He conquers with violence and force, you know? And then you have this baby son who is all left-handed power, who's all weak and all vulnerable and all paradoxical power and who rarely does that, who comes in to be crucified and to be resurrected. It was new. You know, and I think we live, um, especially here in the States. I mean, one of the sigils of the American empire is consumerism and materialism. Yeah. One of the ways that that impinges on the way that we think about the gospel is we think that, or that we think about the world is we think that new things is about acquisition. So I'm like, if I want something, when I think about the new, I think I'm going to get something new. I'm going to buy something new. I'm going to purchase something new. I'm going to get something new. I'm going to have more new stuff, you know? Um, but that's the work of the devil, because the new belongs to the Lord. We are new creations. Behold, I'm doing something new. Behold, I'm doing something that you can't even imagine. No eye, no ear is heard. It's new. It's new. It's new. And so for all the pastors that are about to embark in the tran in transition now, I'm like, how can you be faithful to the thing that has happened before? Mm -hmm. But how can you be faithful in a way that doesn't copy and imitate, but rhymes mm -hmm. and leaves enough room for the Lord of the new to do the new thing? Mm -hmm. You know, um, and to me, uh, if I tried to copy Steve as much as I would like to, um, uh, in some regards, <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, Steve, I, I can tell lots of funny stories about Steve now that I know him, know, know him so well, but I mean, like, I, as much as I would like to, it just wouldn't be faithfulness. Yeah, it would actually mean um, that we um, are that I'm leading, I'm leading what is essentially a giant coffin. Yeah, sure. You know, That's because the Lord will, will do new things. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, Nigel. Go no, ahead. no, it's fine. It, it's really interesting. It reminds me of 
I was watching an interview with Sting, the musician Sting. Yes. He's just yeah. brought out a new album and he's like 70 now. And he, uh, people were asking him about why he keeps recording new albums. And he said, he, he, he sort of, he said it quite nice. He didn't say it too negatively, but he basically said, I couldn't stand to be one of these bands that just keeps going out on the road and playing the same old songs. Like, why, why would you do that? I know that there are songs that people love to hear of mine, but I have the freedom to write new songs and uh, to stay, um, just to stay creative, mm. you know. That's right. He's, he does acknowledge, you know, I'm, I'm privileged to have that, the ability and the freedom to, to do that and to produce, to, to go down sort of experiments and try new things and take risks and all of that. And it was pretty scathing about bands that would, he didn't name any, but, you know, about bands that would just, play their old hits and keep keep going suggesting similarly that's creatively kind of just going down a dead end dead end street really um well i I love that idea of rhyming that's just such a beautiful metaphor um the way you said that i you know i hadn't thought of that because i i did this i came here 10 years ago and took over from hugh and Ginny, the founding pastors of this church they've been here 17 years and i talked about basically building on their legacy i talked about you know that the foundations and you know deliberately uh tried to well deliberately publicly you know just really honored and respected them and all all that they'd stood for whilst trying not to whilst also having the confidence to do, to do my own thing you know to do yeah. do things that were new and, and different and necessary gently yeah and and i mean like if you had had maybe i mean which is rhyming you know, I mean, what you're talking about, Nigel, yeah, yeah, is rhyming. Yeah. I just didn't think of really? it like that. I love that metaphor, though. It's 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 not a different poem. It's not a different story. Mm. Um, it's actually in the same poem, in the same story that's unfolding. Yeah. You know, and and of course, if we were to live in the past, like Sting was talking about, then it would be nostalgia. Yeah. You know, and there's yeah. nothing actually powerful about nostalgia. No. Yeah. You know, but, every, everybody can smell it and see it from a mile yeah. away, and yeah, go, the thing true. is about to die. You know, I think you've you've landed us on some phenomenal gold there, Tim. That actually, I feel like there could be a ministry time for people listening right now because it's inc- <laughs> it's incredibly liberating to hear some of what you've said. Not only for the the senior pastor who is searching for somebody, but also the person who is potentially feeling called towards it. And the conversation Nigel and I had earlier, just chatting about this time with you, could you just take us on a little bit of the journey that you went on to transition the church because it's slightly different in many ways to the calling to plant a church but there will have been a number of things in your journey and your tapestry of life that have embedded in you some of the skills and the equipping and the 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 kind of times of preparation but what did it look like for that to activate and to kind of come into being if if you see what I mean yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Um, I think the first thing that I would say is I would say, uh, whatever plan you have for the transition, you must be open because it'll probably change yeah, <laughs> in the midst of it. Um, and, and going back to the, going back to the rhyming thing, um, I do think that it's interesting, um, depending upon where we're at and how we relate to the internal work that we need to do to be truly free. Um, you could be like a senior pastor thinking the next person who comes after me must do exactly what I did. Yeah. 
you know? Um, and I just respectfully say, I mean, Steve has never put that yoke of imitation or replication of exactly the same thing on me, um, which makes him like, this is part of the reason why he's a world-class leader, right? Um, but I do think that there are a lot of senior pastors who are like, oh, I'm afraid that this thing is going to die. Um, so it must look the same way that it did as I did it. Um, and, uh, and so I just, I just want to say to you senior pastors that are out there kind of maybe thinking that way, um, could I challenge you to think about rhyming instead, mm. you know? Um, cause there's like, yeah. there's like a, there's like two edges to that particular sword, right? One is like, oh, there's liber it's liberative and that, yeah. man, I don't need to come in and do exactly what the founding pastors did before me. Now, you felt that way. You're talking about like setting a new charting a new course, but in a way that was faithful. So, yeah. you know, first nations people, um, here in the States, um, native Americans, when they are, when they are doing a burial or a funeral, they walk away from the funeral. They're walking into new territory because they're walking into the new thing, which is like life without this person. Right. But they walk backwards. They always walk looking um, at, at what they just actually celebrated and memorialized, right? And so in a way that our walking forward needs to be that way too, you know? Um, um, but Steve has never yeah. done that to me, you know, um, which, is, which is really great. Uh, when Steve hired me, when, when, when the church hired me, well, so it was one of the things that Steve really wanted is he wanted a very clear indication from the Lord that I was the person who was supposed to come. And so I have done worship ministry for many, many years. Um, I did worship ministry in churches for like 20 years. Uh, and I, uh, my wife is a, actually a PhD in, in Old Testament. And so like early on in her marriage, she did that. Um, grew up in the vineyard and then did did PhD um, and then um, while we were doing that at once that happened we started having children so we had children a little bit later mm -hmm. um, and as we had children I began to start asking the question what will church look like for my kids mm -hmm. and who are fully immersed in a digital technological age um, yeah, okay. who think about story and who think about relating to other people differently and I started thinking about that a lot um, and I started feeling like I can't answer these questions from the seat that I'm sitting in, which was like the worship person, the music person. Um, I'm interested in asking that question. And I'm also interested in other things like what would it be like if a church was organized around like the principle of the beauty of God? I just started asking some different questions and I knew that I couldn't really answer them from the seat that I was sitting in. So I went and talked to my senior leader, um, who's a wonderful guy, who's now part of the national team here at the Vineyard in the u.s and i said i think it's time for me to go and i think probably transitioning a church is the right thing and not planting you know we have like a course an, an enormous need here in the states to find people who can take over churches and so if anybody's listening and they're thinking oh i fancy a trip to the states maybe you won't ever come back <laughs> and if they're english yeah, they're not yeah. allowed to hear that they need to stay here <laughs> yeah it's a it's a growing it's a significantly growing thing here as well but yeah need, right? yeah, so yeah how do we how do we find this and i think oh i i think i'd like to do that and so i just yeah that was kind of like where i was at left the office of my senior pastor uh walked out and almost immediately i started receiving texts and phone calls from people all over the country and no idea what was happening like, hey, you came to mind this morning, or hey, I had a dream about you, or hey, are you thinking about making a change? And and a lot of that happened within the space of like a month or, uh, or a month or so. Mm -hmm. Two of those specific prophetic words are, were about coming to Evanston. Mm 
Wow. You know, out of the 11 people or so that gave me words from all over, two of them were like about specifically about Evanston. And so I called Steve and I said, Steve, um, the Lord told me that we're supposed to be married. <laughs> no, I never, <laughs> you're like my, you know, you know, like how that happens in churches here in the States, at least it does sometimes. And we're like, oh, and I got to pastor that mess too. Okay. But anyway, like um, yeah. I called him, I told him that it was like 2017 when I told him that. And Steve was like, well, uh, I didn't tell him any of this stuff about like getting prophetic words about coming to Evanston. I just said, Hey, I think it's time for a change. And I'm just wondering if you could advise me. I'm wondering if there's a place I could do some training with you for a little bit um, or whatnot. Cause I'd interned at the church years before um, when I was a university student. Uh, and then I went to seminary. Yeah. And so like I known Steve for years and Steve, um, Steve sighed and he said, Hey, listen, so the council, the church council, our board, we come up with seven, uh, seven like non-negotiables that we're looking for in our next senior leader. Um, there are only two people in the entire vineyard that meet those criteria and you're one of them. And so you're calling me, but I was going to call you in about a year. Hey, wow. And so and then that started, that accelerated the process. Um, yeah. And so the other person leads a beautiful church um, and and didn't feel led to kind of like put his hat in the ring, but this just kind of felt like the Lord was paving the way. And so all the timing worked out too. Um, and um, the process that, that Steve and the council kind of came up with was, Hey, you're going to come here and you're going to be like on staff for like nine months or so, according to our bylaws, by the end of that nine months, then what's going to happen is um, the church is going to vote you in um, if the church does. Um, oh. but we're going to give them like nine months or so to get to know you, to hear you preach, to hear you lead, to get to know who you are and whatnot. Um, and then, um, and then I, and then, uh, what, after that you'll get voted in. And then when you get voted in, if you get voted in, what will happen is that you and I will be the co-senior pastors for a year. Yeah. Then after that, I'll be like sort of an emeritus and you'll be the senior pastor. Um, and then after like, like two years and nine months, I will retire is essentially what Steve was saying. So that's how the plan was. Uh, that's not how it went. So I arrived and somewhere around November, December, which was about five to six months later, Steve was like, you're going to have to lead all this. So maybe you should think about this and maybe you should think about this and maybe you should think about this and and I'm like, wait, wait, well, are we going to be co-senior pastors for a little bit? And he's like, no, no, we're not going to do that. I'm like, okay, so you want, so you want me to, you're, you're just, you don't want to be, the, I know, I, I, you're ready. I don't, I don't want to do it anymore. I mean, like, to be honest, he did it for 45 years. So yeah. when I came around and was just around for a, a few months, he was like, I, I, this is great. You have a lot of energy. This is awesome. You should take this over. And I am toast, like burnt toast. I'm done. And so by the time we got to like six months later, we started already talking about making a change. And so we made that adjustment. And so nine months later, then um, what ended up happening was actually like the church voted me in as the senior pastor. And then Steve was on staff. So I was a senior pastor. Steve was on staff. 
um, and was on staff then for another probably, yeah, another year. Um, and then uh, we got to that year and Steve was like, man, I just don't want to do this anymore. So part of what agitated that feeling is we were doing work internally, like culturally, trying to kind of like maybe shift the culture a bit towards some other things that, that I was really passionate about. And he was like, I agree with all of that. I just don't want to do the work. Mm. I just don't want to do the work anymore. I'm like, that's fine. Mm. Yeah. So we, we, hit to, we hit April, um, which was about a year after I got voted in. And, and Steve essentially took a six-month sabbatical and then just retired in October, um, just past October. Um, he's like, I don't need the money. I just like, I don't. I don't need to be around. Um, so, so having said all that, Steve is still at church every Sunday. Mm-hmm. He's still doing his thing. When there's a young leader standing there who's not leading quite yet or is leading, he stands next to them. <laughs> uh-huh. They're like, who? <laughs> like, who? Who are you? Um, and and um, and Steve actually like we have kept Steve in the employ of the church. Um, pretty much indefinitely. So what we've said to Steve is we've said to Steve, we don't want, we, we would don't want to fight you with your travel schedule. Um, so if we want you to teach a class on prophecy or do a future pastor's class, we don't actually want you to, to, um, to like actually say, can we schedule you? And then you're like, I'm six months out and we want to do that. So we put Steve on a stipend uh, based on the hours that we think that he would probably, we, we were like, are going to hope for him. So he runs a lot of our Holy spirit nights. He runs like, he's going to run a deliverance class for us in January. Um, he's still available to meet with like our, our pastoral interns. He's still around. I'm about to have lunch with him, that kind of thing. He reads every single one of my messages before I give them. We just like, kind of wow. like, what does this actually look like? We came up with sort of kind of like a, um, here's what the pay is going to be. Um, here's, what we were going to ask you to do, um, we'll evaluate after every year of this and see if we need to readjust. Um, um, but this actually helps him. It helps us because it keeps yeah. him around. Um, but it also helps him in that um, because of the way tax law works here in the States, he's allowed to shelter his tax, you know, his, like his honoraria. I mean, he's still an employee of the church. Yeah. And that's just an advantageous to him. Um, but it changes. And so transition, that's the thing. I mean, the literature of transition here in the States, one of the books that, that, that basically the book on transition is a book by a guy named Bridges called Managing Transitions. Um, and uh, one of the things that the book talks about is the book talks about how an organization or a church actually has like six to seven different life cycles. Um, and and when it passes from one cycle to the next, so the beginning is dreaming the dream. The next thing is like a kind of like a, you know, you're gathering people to, and then you're just like letting them do all sorts of different things. And then you start organizing them, which is another phase. The, 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 the goal in that book is every time you make a transition from one phase to the next, it's not change, it's transition. And what transition is, is it's a multiplicity of changes that live primarily in three different phases or three different like stages. The first stage is the death of the old thing. The second stage is the neutral zone when the new thing is coming in, but the old thing is still there and nothing works that well. 
Mm. <laughs> yeah. And then the third stage is the new thing is finally here, right? Mm. So you can imagine when are things most fraught? Well, they're most fraught in the neutral zone, you know. Mm-hmm. And why they oftentimes get really fraught in the neutral zone is because you never grieve that the old thing died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is part of the thing that the bridges do, which is why if you're in a transition, you should do the big retirement ceremony. You should do the big installation ceremony. Nigel, I hope you had one, yeah. you know, because what it does is it visibly signals to people yeah. that a new thing is coming in and it helps them grieve that the old thing has actually died. Yeah. Um, I was and so that's, to, I was talking yeah, to a guy ahead. this week who's about to take over a church and I sent him a picture that somebody gave me and it's a, it's called the bridge of transition. And it's a, it's one of these cartoons that counselors use uh, to help people. And it's sort of, it's it's very simply it's a, a picture of a rope bridge going between two places and then there's right. all these different cartoon characters at different points some are at the some are at the back uh, at the start going there's no way i'm ever going over that bridge and then others are kind of crawling over the bridge and others have run over it the other side and they're you know well, hey and then there's all these different characters and the point is that you look at it and you go, well, where am I on this picture? Right. It's trying right. to give people some emotional uh, literacy uh, to express how they're feeling about the change, whatever the change, whatever the transition is and where they are. And I was saying to this guy, and this is what I did. Somebody gave it me when I started here in this church and when I was just going through the same process as you, because we had about an, a 10 or 11 month overlap um, similarly. And I remember talking to the church and saying, um, look, Hugh and Ginny are leaving. They will be leaving in about three months' time. You have the opportunity to say goodbye to them. We will be doing a proper, you know, big ceremony. Which yeah, is send them. Yeah. For them. Um, but in the meantime, you have permission to feel sad. You have permission to go and grieve with them. You have permission. You need to be proactive and invite them around and spend some time with them and tell them thank you for planting the church 17 years ago or whatever it is. And you and giving people the permission to make that journey for themselves at whatever pace is the right pace for them to, right. to do. Um, and just accepting as a leader that you're going to have people who do that journey quickly um, and you're going to have people who do it slowly and you can have lots of people who are in the middle going, whoa, somebody hold my hand because this is scary. You, you, you know what I mean? Um, and I found that um, the picture itself was really helpful, but it's the process of helping people work through that change and giving them that's right. permission to do it. That's really handy. And you, that phrase that you just mentioned, emotional literacy, yeah. um, is super important because what you're doing is you're giving people um, the ability or the, the permission to grieve. Yeah. Um, so when you think about a new change and you think about somebody coming in, people are like, well, I mean, shouldn't we be joyful about this? The church isn't going to like collapse and we're still going to have this thing. And we're like, well, wait, hold on. You know, the church might collapse. But um, the other thing is like, if you feel sad, I mean, that's appropriate. You should feel sad. And if you haven't felt sad, um, then that's something to process. And probably you notice this too, Nigel. Uh, the other thing that I think is really helpful to know is that the people closest to the transition are going to feel the most grief. Mm. So um, it's so oftentimes your congregants aren't the ones that are like in the most throes of like that grief, but it's like your pastoral staff or your leadership team mm-hmm. that end up like really feeling it. The closer they are to the epicenter of the transition, the more pain they're going to actually feel. It affects their lives way more than it does say like a congregant who comes like once every two weeks right. or. Yeah. or whatnot and yeah. so that's something to really 
pay attention to as well. And, and it sounds I like, just think it sounds like from that book that the that you're saying it's actually worth as a leader, you need to know about transition anyway, whether or not you're actually leaving or starting a new job. That, That's that, right. The, per, that the, that the purpose of managing these different phases or life cycles. I haven't read that book, but it sounds really interesting. But the purpose of managing that um, and helping people through those different processes and the grief of just like Paul's in a church where they planted five years ago, but they're going to have to make a big a, a phase change soon if they're not already in it. You know what I mean? Because they're going to be the people who came and who were part of it, especially for you, Paul, before the pandemic. And now you've come back and things are booming, aren't they, in terms of, you know, since yeah. Um, and so that process is going to be important for any leader, you know, uh, in the church. Mm-hmm. And obviously, particularly important if you're then success, doing a succession where you've got pastors coming in, leaders coming in. It is and it's, it's continually happening regardless, isn't it? Whether you transition the senior leader or not, you've, you've got these change moments. And I think um, there's, there's also like the generational transitions, isn't there? And it's not discounting the past, but it's being faithful and honouring what the Lord is doing in the moment. I heard just this last week, somebody say, um, change, change is guaranteed, but change also can bring growth. I, w- I wonder, Ted, can you just Tell us a little bit about, I realise you've obviously transitioned from Steve and Cindy, but what did that look like for you then to lead the the core and the the pastoral team through that? Because I'm guessing that's a much longer journey than it is for even the visibility of the, the church leadership. Yeah. Well, um, so for us, I think that, uh, and I think this is probably true of you, Paul and, and Nigel. I mean, I, I just even sitting here listening to you guys talk, it's pretty clear, seems like there's a lot of clarity about, okay, what am I for? What are my like inherent values? Yeah. You know, like, what do I really care about? What do I actually make sure that happens in the life of the church? And obviously, you know, that like when you have, if there's a, if it's depending upon the size of the church, um, like you have that, that group of people, like sort of at the center of it is either bigger or, or smaller, depending, you know, and so, so, and you also know that that the core of that leadership, like uh, as you lead them into things, as you want to lead the church into things, you lead the core into the, those things. And then, and then it kind of, it kind of radiates outward. Yeah, so for that's us, right. we have a strong, we had a strong emphasis initially, especially in the kind of cultural moment that we're in here in America, where pastors are like under siege and um, we have a lot of like angry rhetoric out there. Mm. Um, we were like, Hey, um, we're going to be navigating some very like, potentially fraught, like moral issues over the next like five to 10 years. How do we go into those conversations in a way that like um, that radiates the peace and the shalom of Christ and not the anxiety of the age. And so for yeah. us, we started with internal work. So we're going to try to get as healthy as we can emotionally. Um, we're going to like, we're going to deliberately try to create more conversational dialogical ways of doing like ministry rather than top down. We're going to tell you how things go. So we're trying to change a lot of that culture in the beginning. Yeah. Um, and, um, also, uh, there were people like on the team that were great people for Steve, but maybe not necessarily mm. like great people for me yeah. as well. Um, I didn't really know about that. 
Um, but I just remember like when I first started leading the church or when I first started coming to the church, the Lord told me in private retreat and contemplation, um, the work is on the knees. You know, you can work as hard as you want to make things happen in terms of your action. Um, but I'm just here to tell you that the doing, um, the doing is praying. Yeah. And so then I just began to, I just got on my knees and I just started praying for things. And I kept the running list. Like, I'm not sure about this team member. Or I'm not sure about that team member or what's the, so I just started praying every day, Lord, would you intervene? Or would you do something? And part of that was born on like this other thing I felt like the Lord told me where I was like, kind of like, I'm not sure what this guy's fit is. Is he with us or should he not be with us? Like this guy's massive influence. What are we going to do? And I just felt like the Lord told me that's my problem, not your problem. And so I said, okay. Yeah. And so I'm just going to pray. I'm just going to pray. So I prayed every day. And then it like worked out beautifully. Another thing happened. I mean, I have countless story after story of yeah. like where, where, and I've also felt like the Lord is like, Hey, the team is my responsibility. I know you feel like it's your responsibility, Ted, but it's not, it's actually my responsibility. We were trying to hire some people that wasn't working out. I remember walking out the car really frustrated and I felt like the Lord told me, um, I put the teams together, not you. Mm. And so then at that point, I was like, okay, hands off. We're just going to try to, I'm just going to try to pay attention to what you're doing. And habitually, I have just been praying about all of these people. Um, and many of them, many of the answers to the prayer, prayers were surprising. Many of them weren't. Many of them, many of them were like beautiful and they're, you know, and some of them were actually like pretty scratchy and hard. Yeah. Um, but a lot of it, I've just felt like um, I want to build the thing that's here, especially like our team and whatnot on the capacity of God and not on mine. Hmm. And so what does that actually look like? And for me, that looks like actually the divine imagination about the hopeful future of our church that can come from the act of prayer. And so that's what I've done. Wow. Um, I've been very hands off. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Some of that, I've had some hard conversations with people, but a lot of it has just been like, Lord, you know, like teach me, tell me what to do next. Mm. Um, and I hired a coach, like an executive coach. And I'm like, I talked to him monthly. I'm like, what am I seeing that you're not seeing? Um, yeah. What are you seeing that I'm not seeing? And all that's been actually like really helpful. I've gotten as much yeah. outside hope, help as I can too. So, wow. yeah, that's, yeah, I don't know if that answers any question at all, but. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. I, I think there's probably a number of things we could discuss around this on for quite a while, but can I ask you one more question? And I realize this yeah, is bouncing please. it onto something slightly different, but I noticed yeah. one of the criteria Steve had when he was looking for somebody was around um, somebody who has experience with cultural and racial diversity. Yeah, that was one of his seven or eight things that he had also realized, particularly in the States, there was there was, as you mentioned earlier, that all that happened with George Floyd and all that we've been through with the pandemic. But also, um, I think I was reading of you guys just at the Everston Vineyard that you've got you, you have the representation of 55 countries among the people in the church. That's that's right. And there's no mind. There's sorry, there's no majority. That is significant diversity. What does it look like to to invest intentionally in seeking that representation of the kingdom of God here on earth, really? Yeah. Well, um if if you can answer that. It, yeah. No, in, no, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's I, a little I, thing so, to, to tease you. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, so I just, I'll say a couple of things. The first thing that I'll say is how did this church become, become as diverse as it is? And yeah. a lot of that happened um, when they became proximal to diversity. Mm. So I know a lot of churches that, that, that want to have diverse congregations that are in areas that are like 95% monoethnic. Um, so we moved the Evanston Vineyard when Steve bought the bill, when, when Steve and Bill and all the other, when council and everything, when, when they like signed the papers for this building, I mean, it is one street north of the most diverse postal code in all of Chicago. Mm, yeah. And so it, it all of a sudden became a neighborhood church that was drawing from all of the people around. And we have like a very, uh, we have a thriving multi-ethnic Spanish speaking congregation. Well, how did that start? Well, uh, people would call and say, when is your Spanish speaking service? And um, <laughs> they, they started recording the number of people that call. And after 30 of them, like within the space of a couple of weeks, they're like, we need to start something. So some of it's actually prox proximity. You've got to be proximal um, to places where people actually live that are, and, and that, that has a lot of that that changes things that might mean that you're not in as affluent an area or that might mean that you're like in the crossroads between like an area that like some people deem not as safe or whatnot but that's just kind of one of the things that is required that you actually build a home in a space that is in the neighborhood of people that are that are diverse right yeah, that's right um so uh one of the but but having said that aside of that um, here are the other things that that were that are really important to us. I mean, I think cultural competence uh, is really important, and so um, I think that there are lots of resources that are out there, lots of books that are out there. Um, as you seek to become like a pastor of a diverse church, I mean, like you need to. It, it's a different kind of educational sort of uh, syllabus that you actually need to avail yourself of. Um, like lots of theology, lots of lots of Lots of books on the Bible and lots of books on reading the Bible are written by white males. And so if the breadth of your reading um, is sort of limited by that, um, then I think that your cultural competence when it comes to diversity would be fairly low. And so education is one of the first things that like um, when it comes to kind of like the arc of racial justice, as, as people talk about it um, here in the States, Christians talk about it. Education is really, really important. Um, and I'm sure that you have talked to people of color who've come back to you and said, I'm not the one who's supposed to educate you. You know, you're like, can I have a conversation with you about what it's like to be um, like a black Christian in the States? They're like, no. Mm. Here in the States, we're like, I know you can read about it. Why don't you read about it and then come talk to me? Mm. And so there's that piece of it. Right. Um, and of course, like we use lots of co-opted language in the States of um, from things like critical race theory uh, when we talk about diversity. And so if your education, your theological breadth is actually pretty like is wafer thin, then you're going to just get co-opted by the spirit of the age, yeah. you know? And so it's really, really important that you do some education. Representation is really important for us too. So at the highest level of leadership, um, we had like a consultant come in and look at our church. You know, she's like, she's a friend of one of our, our pastoral interns. So she came in and She's like, she came in for a service and she's like, here's what I'm observing. You know, one of the first things that I look for on the pastor staff page is if there is a black woman on staff, you know, because if there's a black woman on staff, then I know a few things are going to happen, you know, 
Um, and I know, I know that you're going to be welcoming uh, the influence and the leadership of women. And I know that you're like, taking that intersectionality of black women, which is how we would talk about it here in the States. Like having that person on staff is going to, going to require you to have like certain kinds of conversations, have certain kind of social competence that would be like required to actually lead a church. Like one of the complaints that we've had here privately as a church is like the staff is really white. It's a really, it's a really diverse church, but the staff is like pretty white. Um, and so that's part of the reason why Steve was when the council that like, we cannot hire a white male to lead the church. Can't we can't do it? Um, and we're right now trying to change the representation on our staff so that it's more representative of our congregation. I think that's really important. If your leadership doesn't look like the type of church that you want to actually be, um, then I just don't think. I think it's going to be really hard to kind of attract the people that you want. I think proximity, representation, education are really important. And then the fourth thing that I think is really important is demonstrated commitment to the work of restorative justice in your community. Like if you're not, if you're not, I think that like, I think that one of the, one of the, one of the ways that we can tell that we're in a post-Christian age is that when we plant a church in a place, people aren't that excited about it. They're like, mm that's just another church but back like in the 50s here in the states or like even in the turn of the century here in the states if you planted a church people would be like yes this is going to be great for our city great for our community but now you do it and people are just like yeah whatever i'm more excited about the civic center or i'm more excited about the opera house or i'm more excited about the about the football stadium or whatnot i'm not excited about church that's part of what it means to be post-christian so the value of church you know, uh, it has, has eroded in our community. Right. And I just think yeah. that like diverse, I think that like doing good in, in the community is really important because it demonstrates the value of your community, of your church to the community. I mean, it does all sorts of other things, but it just is like, okay, you're going to be that kind of church. It's not going to yeah. sit in your hands. You're going to like look at the issues full on, um, and I mean, I, th- those four things I think are like things that we try to lean into. Yeah. Gosh. Ted, some of what you've just shared with us has been absolute gold. If it's okay, I think what we're going to do is split this into two parts. So for those of you that uh, are joining us for this part, I just want to say thank you for being here. We're going to have some further conversations at another point. You can find out more on the Vineyard Church's website. But thank you, Ted. Thank you, Nigel. Uh, it's been great to chat.